Our text this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is called the devil and Satan, and he bound him a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and he shut him up, and he set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loose a little season. There are two distinctively different approaches to interpreting Scripture that with this passage results in very distinct and separate understandings. Those who use a single interpretation process arrive at the perspective, while those who use a dual interpretation process, one for non-prophetic texts and others a different style for prophetic texts, then they come away with a totally different view of this passage. Premillennialist, that's not a dirty word, I thought maybe it was the first time I was called one, but found out, no, it's in harmony with the teaching of the Scripture. Premillennialist means they believe that Christ will come previous to the millennial. There are postmillennialists who believe that Christ will come after the millennium. As a matter of fact, there were some evidence of that on uh, a tape I was listening to uh, that my wife had on her phone from uh, some of the uh, contacts that emphasized that once again. When one of the guys on the panel said, well, we're we're going to see things moving very quickly now, and things are going to come to pass that lead us to this earth becoming a heavenly state. Well, it will become a heavenly state in that it will be authored by heaven itself and the king of heaven will be sitting upon the throne, but it will not be perfect as we take a literal approach to the Word of God. The, the premillennialists then believe Christ will come previous to the millennium. The postmillennial believe He'll come after the millennium. And the amillennialists say, well, ah, I don't know. <laughs> the, the use of the letter alpha, looks like our English A, by inserting that letter in front of a word, gives that word the opposite meaning. So the amillennialists are those who take a figurative approach and do not believe there's going to be a thousand year. Uh, that's just symbolic. And uh, uh, they also, as they look at this, 
view Christ as having already bound Satan so that today Satan is bound by Christ and is imprisoned throughout the church age before the millennium arrives. So how we approach Scripture is certainly going to dictate how we are going to uh, reach a particular result, and the results are going to vary uh, by whatever approach we use. As we read through the Old Testament and observe what was going on among the Jews, they were most definitely pre-millennial, who believed there would be a literal millennial reign where Christ himself would come and redeem men from sin. And then, as Christ did come, and he didn't fill their uh, sense of understanding of how it was all going to play out, they didn't see the two advents of Christ, then, of course, they rejected him, and as a result, cried out for his crucifixion. As Christian doctrine began to be formed, uh, uh, the majority of those who read that which was being written, which would comprise the New Testament, fell within that group of millennials that believed that Christ will come and will establish a millennial reign of a thousand years. That changed down through the years, probably the single man that did more to change that was Augustine, and he rebelled against a literal thousand-year millennial reign and saw it as a need to spiritualize rather than take literal the passages that relate to that, and as a result of his view, and the the popularity of that as he began to uh, propagate it, we find today the church is divided among these things. I found it interesting in discussing uh, with one of the directors of missions in the Sacramento area uh, when I was there. Uh, there was uh, there were five pastors in the congregation that called me to pastor, three of them had candidated for the position and were not called. And then I went into that serpent's snare and uh, uh, pastored for a while. And uh, the director of missions, three of those pastors went to the director of missions and, and uh, told him that I was teaching heresy and false doctrine. And uh, so I, I heard about the meeting. I didn't know what took place, but I, uh, my brother happened to walk in on the meeting between three of those pastors and, and the director of missions uh, uh, in his church up the road from where I was pastoring and, and alerted me to it. So when I went, I, I called the director of missions and said, I need to talk to you. You haven't talked to me. And so I need to talk to you. And uh, 
he said, well, what's your view on the millennium? And I said, I'm premillennialist, just like Paul and Jesus and John and all the other apostles and things. I'm premillennium, a, a millennial. He said, well, I am too. And most of our Southern Baptist pastors in California are as well. But the seminaries are not. The seminaries are all millennial. And of course, we recognize that that's not the only area they've been off uh, on, but unfortunately they train the young preachers. And so there uh, has developed a lot of interest in the amillennial view, though those of us who take a literal approach to Scripture identify it as pre-millennial. And as we are looking at this, this passage of Scripture that we're dealing with today in Revelation chapter 20 then deals with that very issue. There are five major events of prophecy that are recorded in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. We have the binding of Satan in chapter 20 verses 1 through 3. We have the reign of the saints in chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. We have the release of Satan from the bottomless pit in verse 7. In verses 8 through 10, we have Satan's final revolt and the final revolt of mankind here upon the present earth. And then in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we have the great white throne judgment. The devil made me do it will no longer be a valid excuse and will be eliminated during the millennial reign of Christ because as this period of a thousand years begins, it begins following the conclusion of the Armageddon campaign. We studied that earlier and we saw that Christ is going to come with His armies and He is going to stop the battle that is taking place He's going to judge the nations of the earth. He is going to judge Israel. And he is going to establish his kingdom. In order to do that, he binds Satan in the bottomless pit. So although Satan is bound in the bottomless pit, there's still going to be revolt against Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world. In Genesis, Satan is called the serpent. In Genesis 3.1. In Revelation, he's described as the dragon, the devil, the and Satan, which deceiveth the whole earth. As a matter of fact, in between these two passages, in Genesis and Revelation, he is referred to as a murderer and a liar. During the tribulation, that seven-year period we've been examining, he is the one that will control the two beasts, the beast out of the sea, which is the Gentile nations, and the beast out of the Lamb, which is the false prophet of Israel, the one motivating them and the one working through them will be Satan. So look with me then at these five events that are going to take place 
and recognize that what we're seeing today in the way of current events is actually leading to this climatic period of time and will that that will result in the end of time itself as we see this play out look again at verse 1 through 3 in the binding of satan john says i saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon that old serpent which is the devil and satan and he bound him a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And then after that, he must be loosed a little season. So remember this 20th chapter and this statement of what John now sees uh, follows the events that were detail for us in the 19th chapter and though he is not seen by the physical eye satan will have been in that last three and a half year period confined to the earth he presently has access to heaven where the scripture says he goes as our accuser and he accuses men night and day before god but three and a half years into the tribulational period, he no longer has access to heaven and is confined to the earth. The angel that is mentioned here, John says, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. That angel then makes an appearance probably is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself because he alone is a match for Satan. We recognize that Michael is not. You may remember while Daniel was seeking direction from God, the angel was prohibited from being able to get to Daniel by Satan for three weeks. And we had to have more divine in interruption in order to accomplish that. So it appears here that what we are seeing uh, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in that role as messenger. I remind you, the word angel, when translated, means messenger. And it can relate to a celestial messenger or relate to a terrestrial or a human messenger, depending upon the uh, context that is being dealt with. So we're not sure there's no further identification of this angel, but simply says he came down, he had the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and that he binds then the devil. Satan is cast into that area of Sheol or Hades that we identify as the bottomless pit. It's identified as the abyss. It's also identified uh, as Tartarus or the prison. And uh, presently, as we have seen in our earlier study, that area is cohabited or is inhabited today by the fallen angels 
that cohabited with women during the Noahic, uh, leading up to the Noahic flood. And uh, they come out of that three and a half years into the tribulation and are loosed upon the earth to wreak havoc here upon the earth. So when Satan is bound there at the end of the thousand years, he's the only one there. And we have various terminology uh, that describes uh, uh, his binding. Uh, no doubt because he is a spirit being, there is some symbolic reference here. But for our understanding, he, this angel has the key to the bottomless pit and he has the ability uh, then to confine uh, uh, this, to confine Satan for a thousand years. In verse 4 then, John said, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of men that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So what we saw back in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, uh, being anticipated has now become realized and is fulfilled. It's understood that Christ will sit on his throne and he will reign as the legitimate son of David. And that's clearly stated in the last clauses of this verse. Who are those then that are occupying the thrones? Well, from the combined testimony of Scripture, we know that the New Testament saints are going to... Uh, occupy some of those thrones, they will reign with Christ as the queen reigning with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We as his bride will be reigning with him. And remember the thousand year period is also a fulfillment of the marriage feast that lasts during that thousand year period as Christ brings the groom, uh, brings the bride, the church back to the earth. And so we will, uh, are said to rule and reign with him in that millennium. But in addition, we find those that are martyred during the tribulation, that they are going to rule and reign with Christ. Now, the church will be the bride of Christ, and we might use the term the queen along with the king, and the role of those Jews that are killed during the tribulational period that are going to reign, they reign as regents. And we will, we see more of that as we go into Old Testament prophecy and draw out those passages in a harmony. Now verse 5 said, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished, and we have that note, this is the first resurrection. So the rest of the dead do not experience resurrection until the thousand years are finished. And so it's pointless and baseless to speak of a general resurrection. The amillennials say there will be a general, res a general resurrection that 
all believers and unbelievers will be raised at the same time and they will go before uh, the great white throne judgment that will transpire and uh, they do not see the distinction between the first and the second resurrection when pressed to answer why the scripture talks about the first resurrection distinctly and speaks about the uh, a second resurrection we find uh, that they are hard pressed and actually it's impossible for them to uh, provide a satisfaction uh, concerning that what they conclude is that it's just a spiritualization rather than a literal occurrence so my my question when we start getting into spiritualizing passages where do we draw the line the scripture is either literal or it is spiritual and uh, we are within the context we are able to see what while some symbols are used and there's some reference uh, to spiritual things certainly uh, there is to be a literal approach to the word of God. So the rest of the dead do not live again until the thousand years are past. Now, as we look at verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Blessed and holy are all those that are part of the first resurrection. And if you recall, when we have studied the doctrine of resurrections in the past, we have identified that there are four aspects of the first resurrection. The scripture uses the military terminology to identify them as four companies or four battalions. Christ was the first. He was the first one raised from the dead. Secondly will be the church age believers at the rapture. And Paul deals with this in his letters to the Corinthians. The church is going to be resurrected before the Old Testament saints. Thirdly, then, we have the Old Testament saints and the tribulational saints are part of that because they are part of the age of Israel. They are raised uh, from the dead as well. So we have Christ, the first fruits, afterward those that are Christ at his coming in the air, and then we have the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. And there may be a fourth company or a fourth battalion. Scripture doesn't touch the issue of those who die during the thousand-year millennial reign. Remember, when Christ comes back and judges the world, he will destroy all unbelievers. And so the only ones that go into the millennium in their natural bodies without a resurrection body will be those that are saved during the seven-year period of tribulation. 
and they will retain their natural bodies and uh, so that they will propagate and the earth will become repopulated uh, through those believers. Satan bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. There'll be a lot of uh, a lot of increase in the population of the earth uh, be rather reduced when Christ comes back and and just uh, leaves alive those that are believers. But they're going to go in their natural bodies into the millennial kingdom. So if they die during the tribula during the millennial period, there'll have to be a resurrection for them. And that's not dealt with specifically uh, in the Scripture. But the, the Scripture says if a person dies a hundred years old during the millennium, they will be referred to as dying as an infant. Death is not destroyed until the end of the thousand year reign and the end of time. And then death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. And so we have uh, uh, probably uh, a, a fourth group that will be resurrected to life, but they're not dealt with in our scripture. So the final doom of Satan and the beast and the false prophet follows then the thousand year millennial reign. Verse 7 said, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. After the, the thousand year reign of Christ, why would it be that Satan is going to be loosed out of his imprisonment in the bottomless pit? Well, it's his final attempt to overthrow God. And he is bound there and there is perfect environment and Christ himself is sitting upon the throne of David. And as all of this transpires, the, the idea of the devil making us do it is eliminated because he's in the bottomless pit. And then the psychologists and sociologists who proclaim no man's problem is his environment, that argument is going to be removed. Because there will be a perfect environment with a perfect judge and perfect justice during that thousand year period. And yet there will be rebellion against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because man is in his nature depraved. We are the product of a fallen race. And our old sin nature is the cause. And so... The thousand year millennial reign will show, no, it's not man's environment, it's man's nature. And therefore, the need for a new birth, a spiritual life, that we might become able then to deal with the issues that God presents to us. Now, in this statement in verse 8 that follows, it says, uh, as Satan is released out of his prison and he shall go out, to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, together them, together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. 
So when Satan is released from the bottomless pit, he immediately goes out and uh, uh, enlists an army. We have a reference to Gog and Magog. We had that reference earlier during the Armageddon campaign. We talked about Gog and Magog. And we identified those as being the area where Russia now uh, occupies, the area Russia now occupies. And that is the geographical location from the king of the north, for the king of the north that will come down upon Jerusalem. And now we have, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, another reference to Gog and Magog. Are these the same people? Well, I do not buy that these are the same people but I believe it's the same geographical location. And Gog and Magog are idioms that refer then to the rebellion against God. Why are they not the same people? Well, because when Christ returns to the earth to establish the millennium, he kills all of them. All of the unbelievers are removed. All of the nations of the earth or judge. But there will be believers in that geographical area. But notice they're not the only people that Satan enlists, Gog and Magog. He goes to the four quarters of the earth and he gathers together an army that is as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky for multitude. In a perfect environment, Christ on the throne, ruled by the principles that are identified for us in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in the Beatitudes. There is rebellion against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's only when man's nature is changed and the old sin nature is eradicated that there will be any hope for peace and for joy and the provisions that are made there. Now in your study guide, I provided some, some reasons, four reasons, uh, that those mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 in the battle, uh, of Armageddon, uh, are, dis- are to be seen distinct from the Gog and Magog here, that it's a new generation. Uh, that has come into being. In verse 9, John continues, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So all of these nations that have aligned themselves with the newly released Satan out of the bottomless pit, multitude that they may be, they encompass the camp of God, the holy city, New Jerusalem. But it's not much battle. Fire comes down out of heaven and destroys them. Verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever 
endeavor. Finally, the instigator of sin here on the earth in the Garden of Eden is dealt with. Finally, the one who rebelled in eternity past in heaven against God, Lucifer, the, the fallen angel, who was sentenced at that time to the lake of fire and brimstone, finally he is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone after the millennial reign, after he is loosed for a short season, he is now eternally cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, it's difficult for us to conceive in our minds, perhaps, the horror of the lake of fire and brimstone. I received contact this week from one of my nephews wanting some feedback as to why and how are we going to be able to deal with our relatives, with our loved ones, with people that we've known. Uh, While we're in heaven and they're frying forever in a lake of fire and brimstone, how can we deal with that at that particular time? Well, I pointed out to him two things. The first is, the Bible says there's no remembrance of this life in eternity. Now, I know that's not what a lot of folks want to hear. You've got folks waiting for you, and shall we gather at the river, and I'll meet you in the morning, and all of those things. I'm not sure leading up to eternity, you know, we're going to be in heaven for seven years with Christ, and then we're coming back to the earth for a thousand years with Christ. I'm not sure when that memory clearing takes place. But I know that all the references to no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, that's following the end of time and the destruction of this heaven and this earth and a new heaven and a new earth. It's only then that there are no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. So the Scripture leaves me in the dark concerning my knowledge of Scripture leaves me in the dark concerning what might transpire during that 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 thousand and seven year period of time as it relates to memory and association. But in eternity itself, there's no more memory of this life. And then the second thing that comes to mind, and I wouldn't place it in second place, um, but alone beside that is the fact that we will have the mind of Christ. So no longer will our sense of justice be tempered by our human emotion and compassion. We will have the mind of Christ and we will understand uh, that sin requires a penalty and that Christ paid it for all that would accept it, but for those who reject it, they stand on their own. 
and judgment, justice declares that there be a penalty paid by them. And so, uh, whatever is going to transpire, I can guarantee you won't be sad, nor will you have any sorrow when we move into the new heaven and the new earth in eternity. Finally, finally, Satan is going to be thrown into that lake of fire and brimstone. And some folks say, well, that can't be literal because they're not, they are seen there forever and ever in torment. If they were actually thrown in fire, they'd be consumed. Oh, tell me about the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Tell me why they weren't consumed. They were thrown into the fire. And so we know that God has all of that figured out. And there are probably more important things that we should be concerned about than those things. Following the throwing of Satan into the lake of fire. And notice where the beast and the false prophet are. A thousand years before they were cast in. They're still there. He's going to join them there as well. So following that then, we have the establishment of the great white throne judgment. Now the amillennials who operate on the principle that God only has one covenant, one people, that when Israel was rejected, they're done with, and the church has taken their place, and there is no re-opportunity uh, for uh, Israel. Uh, all of that, they believe, being symbolic. Uh, well, in spite of all that, we find that the Scripture identifies judgment and identifies actually uh, judgment in, in the verses that are listed here is the final judgment, but it's not the only judgment. The Bible identifies seven distinct judgments. One that's past, one that's present, and five that are future. Now because of the limited time uh, this morning, I'd simply uh, identify the, the first six uh, briefly, and then the last one is the one that our text focuses on. First, there is the judgment of the cross. It was a judgment in two senses. Our sins were judged at Calvary. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, Galatians 3.13, and Romans 8.1. And secondly, Satan was judged there as well. If we compare Colossians 2.14 and 15 and John chapter 16 verse 11. It's a judgment that is past and it will never be repeated again. Secondly, there is the judgment of the sinning believer. If we do not judge ourselves, Paul indicates we shall be judged. Now don't, don't confuse that judgment with condemnation, but rather the Holy Spirit brings conviction upon our lives and 
and uh, provides for us there. All of our sins, past, present, and future, were paid for by Christ on the cross. Our confession simply acknowledges that. And uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But we are to judge ourselves in our daily walk and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is provided when we are negligent of that. Thirdly, the judgment of our works is going to take place at the judgment seat of Christ following the rapture of the church. Fourth, there is the judgment upon Israel that's going to be visited uh, Ezekiel 20 verses 33 through 38 with Matthew 24, 9 uh, and 10. And this takes place then uh, after the tribulation, immediately following the, the destruction of of the at the Battle of Armageddon, we have then the judgment of the nations and Israel is going to be judged, the separation of the sheep from the goats, and all of that occurs at that time to go into the eternity. You know, a whole series of books uh, uh, written a while back called uh, uh, Left Behind, and uh, there's no mention in those that the left behind uh, that are identified in Matthew and are identified in other passages of Scripture refers not to those that are left behind at the rapture, but to those that are left behind at the second advent. And those left behind at the second advent are believers and they go into the millennial reign of Christ. So when two are sleeping in the bed and one's taken and the other left, when two are in the field, don't try to tie that into uh, the, ra- the rapture of the church. It does not refer to the rapture of the church. The context shows it refers to the second advent of Christ. And you want to be among the left behind. You won't be. You profess faith in Jesus Christ. So we'll go up before then. But when Christ comes back, those that are there want to be in the ones that are left, and not those that are slaughtered uh, at that particular time. So there is a judgment then of the nations and the judgment of Israel uh, that is going to occur at the return of Christ. Now all of this is taught to us in the seven annual feasts. And uh, we just have gone through uh, this period of of ten days when the Jews have been reflecting back upon uh, the past year and under the the feast that God established, uh, there was the Feast of Trumpets that called them to assembly and then there is the Feast of Atonement that provided for the forgiveness of sin and then there is the Feast of, of Tabernacles which was a, a memorial to the temporary dwelling. Uh, and so those are yet to be fulfilled. Christ fulfilled the first four of those feasts, and now the last three, he positionally have guaranteed them, but experientially uh, they have not been fulfilled. When Christ comes 
and to establish his kingdom, he judges all the nations of the earth that and calls Israel from all of the nations of the world to return to the homeland. What we have there presently is a Zionist movement. But what we're going to see is all believers are going to be brought back then to uh, the Holy Land. And uh, that will be the Feast of Trumpets. That is followed by ten days of reflection. From the Feast of Trumpets just recently observed by the Jews, they now uh, went through a ten-day uh, program of what they call awe. When they reflect back upon the past year and they write down all the sins that they've committed during that period of time, they, they go over their their past year in that ten-day period and then they come to the atonement when those are forgiven. Well, as it relates then to the prophetic message, Christ will come, He will judge the earth, and that ten-day period is a judgment of all the nations of the earth and a judgment of Israel. And uh, then the curse is removed from the earth. And uh, the desert blossoms as a rose and the ferocity of animals is removed. But death remains during that period of time. And that's reflected then as a fulfillment of the Feast of Atonement. And they move into the temporary dwelling. It's a thousand years, uh, not a seven-day uh, period of time uh, under the law, but a complete fulfillment of that. And all of that is going to occur at that particular point. But now we come to the seventh judgment, and it's described in verse 11 through 15 of Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. This is the second resurrection. This is the judgment of the wicked and the dead. It's distinct then from the resurrection that we mentioned uh, before. Uh, the characterization here of a white throne is to identify and establish purity and holiness by which they are going to be judged. The throne indicates the divine authority that is going to be judging and the one that sits on the throne is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that by comparing John chapter 5 verse 22 and 27 with 2 Timothy 4.1. And to underscore the gravity of what's going to take place, John states the earth and the heaven fled away from his presence and there was found no place for them. The great white throne judgment will take place then between the passing of the millennial scene and the entrance into a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 12 says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. Two sets of books are in view. Some would say, no, 
the book of life refers to the books. No, the scripture makes a distinction between the two. The books are the books of works. They are that which is accomplished by individuals in their lives, the record of their lives. The book of life is the book in which the name of every living creature, every living human being that would ever live upon the earth was uh, written, their names, our names were written in the book of the living uh, before the foundation of the earth. We've done a study on the Lamb's book of life. I included a copy of that in your study guide today in case you have uh, forgotten how that plays out or was not involved in that study. Uh, I included in your printed guideline so that you can understand what's going to take place. Two sets of books. The books that record the events and actions of a person's life and the Lamb's Book of Life that includes uh, those who have become dependent upon the saving grace of God. All of the names were written in eternity past. Now there's a great deal of discussion and an awful lot of confusion uh, about those books uh, as we find it almost any uh, Sunday or any time uh, we turn into religious broadcasting uh, concerning the Lamb's Book of Life. You have those who are of Reformed tradition uh, and covenant theology who believe that in eternity past God wrote the names of everyone that He personally would save, desired to save, and uh, could save. That He wrote their names in the book. And so only the elect of God only those that were chosen by God apart from their free will are written in the book and they will remain there. Oh, that's a problem. They will remain there because the Bible says some names are blotted out of the book of the living. Well, if the names of only future unbelievers are written in, then pray tell Whose names does he blot out? It doesn't follow. And then there are those who believe that when you receive Christ as Savior, that's when your name is written in the book. However, if eternal security is a reality, (laughs) and from Genesis to Revelation, that's a proven fact, then There's no room for the name to be blotted out. No, it's called the book of the living. It's called the Lamb's book of life. It records every name. And I've given you the documentation once again in your study guide uh, concerning the explanation. It's the use of the perfect tense in the Greek that identifies a completed action in past time with a result continuing forever 
and some names are written in a completed action in past time with a result that's remain written forever. Other names were written in a completed action in past time, but they are blotted out when they do not receive the grace of God, then they come and they come to the end of their physical life, that name is blotted out. It's the only understanding of it that makes any kind of sense. So two sets of books, the book of works, those books that identify the life of that individual that that individual has lived. Now, the requirement of God is perfection. The requirement of God is sinlessness. And so, none of us have met that standard. But by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and our personal faith in Him, we are able then to have His righteousness credited to our account and uh, our sins... uh, are blotted out, never to be held against us. They've been paid for. At the great white throne judgment, it's only unbelievers. Those who have not received the grace of God are there, and they are there to stand on their own merit. And so the books are open, and their life is examined, but it does not attain the level of requirement of sinless perfection that God's holiness and justice demand. And there's no provision for them in that they've never received the free gift of grace. And so the book, the Lamb's Book of Life is opened and their name has been blotted out and it's hello lake of fire and brimstone. John, in describing what's going to take place, said the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. The sea gave up the dead in it. Death gave up the dead. Hell, that's actually the word Hades, the abode of the dead in the heart of the earth, delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is described as the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life, written perfect tense, written in a completed action in past time, with the result that they remained forever, was cast into the lake of fire. So, review the material that I provided for you in uh, the Lamb's Book of Life and recognize that our only hope is to assure that our name is retained. Not written, but retained. It's been written in eternity past. Before God founded this earth, He wrote your name in the book. We sing a song, Is your name written there on the page bright and fair? In the book of God's kingdom, is your name written? Yes, it's written there. But can it be blotted out? 
Oh, absolutely. Unless we have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. For when we accept that grace gift of God by personal faith in Jesus Christ, we are sealed unto the day of redemption. And we will avoid the lake of fire. So your name is written there. <laughs> written on the page bright and fair. Written in order that you might have life and have it abundantly in the kingdom of God. To keep it there, one act is required. A simple act of faith, not a work, but a surrendering to accept God's offer of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's where it begins. Because the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Bible says with the heart man believes unto righteousness. But with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for the good news, for the reality of hope that is confident expectation that we have that not by acts or deeds of the law or works that we have done, but by our surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ, our acceptance of His righteousness being credited to our account, we're able to come before you even now in prayer and yet in person in the days to come. Keep us, we pray mindful of these things and of our role in sharing the good news with others. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.